This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Usher Rogers about state-sponsored literature, Britain and cultural diversity after 1945. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Um, this is a fantastic book. It's incredibly interesting. There are loads of really kind of um, fascinating details and case studies. Um, if anyone is interested in both literature and the history of literature, um, they're going to find all kinds of interesting um, stories and, and quite provocative, uh, I think, lines uh, of thought in it. And the place to start with the book really is that kind of central idea, its central line of thought, which opens, it, there's a fascinating discussion of, of Orwell and, and a kind of broad discussion of what we usually think the relationship between the state and literature is, which is usually about censorship. But the book almost kind of comes at things from the exact kind of reverse uh, or opposite position, the idea that the state can be a kind of protective, enabling, supportive institution for literature. And I'm really intrigued to know where that idea came from. Mm. Yeah, thanks very much. I mean, yeah, as you say, the the kind of central premise of the book is really trying to reinstate the state as a material condition for all kinds of creative production. But in my case, thinking particularly about literary writing um, and saying, actually, if we look back into the post-war period, we see the state playing a really crucial role through cultural institutions to protect, to encourage, to fund, in many cases, uh, literary writing and and really doing it on the premise that you have to give writers the economic freedom to create. So that's, I suppose, where Orwell comes in in terms of trying to reimagine the relationship between the state and the writer away from one that's relatively coercive, So, which also presents the writer as a kind of vulnerable individual and also presents the state as a kind of monolithic force and actually say, well, there's a kind of different situation going on. Um, Not only do we have literary culture as a whole network of different individuals and organisations and groups rather than just a kind of vulnerable individual, but the state itself is also made up of all different kinds of institutions and uh, sure, some of those are um, might have a, a hostile or coercive posture towards creativity if we think about the Ministry of Information or propaganda um, more generally. But also there are institutions which are really interested in enabling and protecting um, creative expression. Um, for instance, the most obvious example being the Arts Council of Great Britain. Um, and and I kind of argue that Orwell knew this because Orwell is a part of both worlds. It's in some respects a certain version of Orwell that is the most popular, um, which is obviously that of of Big Brother looking down on Winston as he's doing his writing. We probably need to do a bit of ground clearing. And you'd flagged, actually, you know, you've mentioned the Arts Council of Great Britain um, and you mentioned various 
um, other parts of maybe the kind of slightly more um, repressive set of state institutions. But we probably need to do a bit of ground clearing in terms of some of these institutions and also, I guess, kind of Britain as, as, as well. And many listeners to this will have, you know, a sort of fairly straightforward view of, of Britain. They'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, Britain, England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, etc. But one of the things you try and do um, right at the start of the book and, and actually, you know, throughout um, the examples is to think through the idea of Imperial Britain. So I wonder if kind of sketch out what do you mean by imperial britain and why is that kind of imperial britain worldview important both to set the scene but also kind of later on in the text Mm. yeah i mean i think in some respects the book is probably trying to do something quite simple which is to make the point that in some of our scholarly fields and some of our ways of conceptualizing um history in fact we often make series of, of quite crude distinctions um, so, for instance, in my in my world of English literature, we often think of British literature and culture um, as a relatively um, white, kind of homogenous thing. Maybe particularly engaging ideas of social class and and the transformations that happen in terms of social class and and gender and things like that. Um, but at the same time, we've got all sorts of global convulsions that are shaping that. Um, and so, this book is interested in picking up this moment where the British state becomes much more actively involved in trying to support literary production and saying, actually, at the same time that's happening, we're also dealing with the end of empire. We're also dealing with um, the British state comparing itself to its rivals in Europe. Uh, We're also dealing with large-scale migration into Britain and how the, the kind of changing demographic of the population puts pressure on institutions that are supposedly serving the public um so i think that that kind of imperial context means that there's all sorts of more global points of connection not least the fact that um the british state itself is is kind of feeling quite insecure um and is trying to make sense of itself to itself in all sorts of ways i mean we're going to hear about various examples of that through um, I mean particularly the Arts Council of Great Britain uh, which um, has a sort of central place um, in in the sort of middle of the book Um, but also there are various other important institutions and and it's funny you you kind of say this sense of the British state feeling sort of slightly under pressure but also you know kind of making sense of itself and and its relationship to I was going to say its citizens but to an extent you know it's kind of subjects as well and one of the key institutions here is the british council and quite early on in the book you you sort of sketch what the british council is kind of where it comes from and crucially like what it's doing in terms of supporting particular authors to have views about the empire to have views about the uk um, how some authors kind of gain prominence others don't and it's a fascinating example i think of that um both you know sort of vulnerability or insecurity and the sense of the state acting to support and develop literature Mm. yeah absolutely i mean i think across the book there one of the reasons i take this approach of working with different state institutions or different kinds of case studies is to really make the point that the state is supporting literature for different reasons at different times there are these kind of protean justifications um 
and which make it super rich and interesting and, and worth kind of serious study. And lots of this kind of comes out when you do the archival work. Um, in the case of the British Council, the the real thing that was driving the British Council's interest in literature was the fact that it was seemingly um, unpropaganda-like, that it was um, an artistic language uh, where people didn't feel coerced into um, kind of assimilating certain political ideas. And the great irony is that that's exactly why they want to work with it, to promote ideas of Britain, um, to promote the English language, to promote um, kind of the cultural values of Britain as well. Um, and so that that debate within the British Council about well, how can we use literature to quietly promote certain cultural values um, and, and it really gets interested in the Englishness of English literature and to that extent kind of is less keen on, on some other parts of, of the union. Um, but also that it, it kind of hits upon a stumbling block, which is actually if you look at English literature, you know, a really significant number of writers are writing about places outside of England and outside outside of Britain as part of articulating, again, its its place in the world or their place in the world. Um, and so some of the, the actual text that the British Council promotes, and it's doing this via a series of book boxes which travel between different countries, and that's a, a blueprint, if you like, for the, the global system of libraries, which the British Council is still really well known for. Um, many of those, those books are actually dealing with parts of the empire, um, or are writers with all sorts of different kinds of global connections. Um, so there's there's things that the British Council is trying to do, and then there's the kind of law of unintended consequence. I'm interested actually to hear a little bit more about what those unintended consequences were uh, for, for some of its work. Um, particularly, um, I mean, there, there are lots of examples in that initial chapter, but particularly in, in terms of, I suppose, reading these texts uh, both, you know, about the empire and, and more locally now and thinking about, as you say, the precisely kind of political, non-political ideas that kind of shine through. Mm. Yeah, I mean, so two two examples, really. Um, one one example of, of a book that's included in the British Council's lists of books that should be travelling is um, a memoir about, about India by J.R. Ackley, who is a BBC journalist. And again, some of this this comes down to the kinds of ways of reading these texts, which um, which we can do, perhaps against the grain. So it's not just about what books you are out there, what books are on the list, but then how we might read them differently from how the British Council read them at the time. So in my reading of this this memoir, Hindu Holiday by J.R. Ackley, um, it's a real account of of the kind of provincialism, if you like, um, of of this kind of man of the 30s being out there in the world, um, of a, a kind of difficulty in negotiating cultural difference, particularly this desire to encounter cultural difference and deal with it on English terms of, of being in the position of power. And actually the text reveals just how much of a struggle that is. Uh, and another text by G.K. Chesterton, um, his his book The Flying In from 1914, um, again, if you if you look at it now, it's a real account of of a kind of insulationist, 
provincial attitude to um, Britain's place in the world. So this particular text it imagines um, England being kind of taken over by by Islam, effectively, um, and kind of being embattled by those forces of Islam. So it's a really kind of really depicts the nature of kind of English parochialism at the early point in the 20th century. And yet those are the texts that are out there. The British Council is saying, you know, read these and you'll you'll get a sense of who we are in this country. Um, so quite quite strange, really. The other, we've mentioned institutions, the other big institution at the front end of the book is the Arts Council of Great Britain. And I mean, you know, that's seen like it must be close to hundreds, if not even more books written about it. And it's, you know, central to various um, bits of, of, of academic, uh, both history and, and cultural policy. So I don't need you to kind of give a full sort of detailed history of it, but it'd be useful to know a bit about like what it is slash was, and, and also in, in this context, how it came to get involved in literature, because to an extent, um, you make the arguments in the book, and, and, and I think you're, you're really spot on about this, literature has a, a sort of strange kind of relationship with the idea of the Arts Council, state funding, um, and the kind of uh, patronage system more generally in Britain. Mm. Yeah, I mean, as you say, the the Arts Council of Great Britain is is one of these organisations that is pretty well known, um, emerged from a kind of war era precursor to to, to existing in 1945 um, as an organisation that you know, in the shorthand is it was designed to offer the best to the most in cultural terms. So to um, offer high culture to the masses, if you like. Um, and of course, the the big question that emerges from that is, well, who, who decides what what is good? And um, um, what do the masses have to say about it? And in many ways, that the history of the Arts Council is, is a tussle between those ideas of um, of excellence, of creative excellence, and of um, democratization. Um, I've forgotten the second part of your question. <laughs> Just a couple of sort of, I guess, illustrations of why it ended up funding literature, because by the time we get kind of later on in the book, its decisions around literature become extremely controversial. Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, if you, if you look at the history of the Arts Council, you find that... Um, Although many kind of many literary figures are involved in the Arts Council, the actual support of literary writing comes really late on compared to other art forms. So although the Arts Council is supporting poetry in particular from the 1950s, um, literature more generally is a slightly more kind of capacious category, only really gets get support from the mid-60s onwards. And that's really to do with um, a, a difficult issue around this, the idea of the kind of individualism of literature in many ways, the fact that there are other art forms out there which have uh, much greater, more conspicuous kind of organisational costs, whether that's opera or the ballet. Um, but one of the things that's thought about with literature is that it's kind of to do with private individuals. Um, and again, that that presents real problems when you think about the fact that a literary culture um, is populated by all sorts of groups, organisations, whether that's publishers or literacy organisations later in the century and so on and so forth. Um, so that is a, a real kind of um, underpinning insecurity around the funding of literature by the Arts Council. 
And at the same time, the the Arts Council uh, funds some really kind of important writers in the 60s and 70s. Uh, it sets up a system of direct grants straight to writers um, with relatively few strings attached, actually. And, and um, there are probably writers out there today who wish that was still in place. <laughs> and that, again, one of the, the assumptions maybe is that writing funded by the Arts Council would be kind of so-called middle-brow writing. Um, but actually, the Arts Council is funding all sorts of kind of more experimental writing. It depends on who's in key decision-making positions at key times. But in the 60s, um, one of one of the literature directors is particularly kind of gives himself the task of finding the next James Joyce. So it's really interested in how it can support innovative work. Uh, and then into the 80s, you get a very different set of conditions where in order to, to really justify the funding of, of literature by the Arts Council, in order to make the case for its social value, um, the Arts Council particularly targets um, Black British, British Asian and Caribbean writers uh, more in, in a very different set of policies, really to show that the Arts Council is, is making a difference socially. And that's a moment where um, literature becomes valuable to particular organisations because of its claim to social representativeness, because of its claim to to give voice to to a variety of different subjects, especially those who have been outside of prevailing systems of prestige. But this is obviously not with without controversy, uh, and I mean, it's not a sort of immediate um you know kind of hard shift um in in terms of the differences between the sort of 60s 70s and then into the 80s but there is a really distinctive story of struggle that comes through by the time we get to the 80s and that sense of trying to kind of represent um broadly and maybe a, a new kind of multicultural version of britain is I mean it gets you know one example is it gets tested in court uh, it gets entangled in race relations policy and race relations law um, and I'm I'm kind of fascinated by sort of what the story is how the Arts Council you know ended up in in that position and I guess maybe what uh, the kind of ideas and lessons you uh, draw from it in terms of the state's relationship with literature. Mm. Yeah, I mean the. In a, in a sense, researching the Arts Council's literature policies in the 80s was a real turning point in my, my whole work on this whole project because I stumbled upon a bunch of things I just wasn't expecting. So um, I perhaps was expecting that in the 1980s you might see a kind of retrenchment when it came to the, the state support of organisations like the Arts Council. Uh, what I wasn't expecting was that Effect, and this is an argument I developed elsewhere in the book as well, effectively and paradoxically under Thatcher you get the emergence of, of multiculturalism as a, as a criteria for funding um, and as something that is kind of supported under Thatcher and, and that does happen in the Arts Council but, you know, for, for various fairly dubious um, reasons and, and sets of arguments so in the Arts Council of the 80s um, in the same time that um, 
Uh, actually, it's it's um, William Reese Mogg, who is now whose surname might be familiar to <laughs> for different familial reasons. Um, he is the chairman of the Arts Council, and is at the same time that he casts doubt on whether the literature department should still be funded because of the, these ideas about the fact that you know it's a private art form. Um, you get uh, William Rees-Mogg kind of espousing the fact that these organisations should be supporting a multicultural society. Um, and so the Arts Council's literature department is is put in a really difficult position, if you like, of um, both having to say, you know, having to fight for its kind of existential right to exist uh, and to say, actually, yeah, we will, we do support um, writers from a variety of different um, cultural backgrounds. And and one of the claims I try to make in the book more generally is these controversies, these tussles, um, not only show us that, you know, make, show us that literature has been, um, has been socially valuable or that the, the state itself has been kind of materially important to literary writing and, and in terms of funding and things like that. Um, but also literature and, and some of the disputes that happen change state institutions. Um, so in the case of the Arts Council in the 1980s, a, a particular controversy around whether the Arts Council could create bursaries just for black and Asian writers actually ends up being the first ever test case of a particular clause of the Race Relations Act. Um, and so it's really fleshing out important things to do with um, the law uh, under which we all live. Um, and that happens time and time and again, actually. It happens in relation to freedom of expression as well. Um, you know, these literary case studies are actually testing out much larger things to do with how we live in this country. I mean, that that's very much a institutional story, I think, and to an extent so is the... British Council example, and later on in the book, you give um, a sort of specific individual story, both of you know state support and, and actually you know specifically state protection, which is the story of um, Sam Rushdie and the Satanic Verses uh, publication and, and, and subsequent, I guess, kind of fallout um, from its publication. And one of the things I found fascinating about this was not just it's a good example of your idea about the state having this you know supportive, uh, protective relationship um, to, to writers and, and to literature, but also you, you try and set it actually in, in the particular context of Rushdie being um, an extremely kind of incisive critic of the British state, so effectively, you know, kind of going to town repeatedly in various different ways on, on the failures of uh, the British state, particularly um, what we'd now think of as kind of institutionalised forms of racism. And yet at the same time, after Satanic Verses is published, the state supports and protects them. And if I'm kind of formulating that in a question and, and sort of thinking about the context of a podcast, it would be a version of, could you tell that kind of story of, of Rushdie and the story of the relationship with the British state, which runs actually right to today, doesn't mm. it? Yeah, again, really, you know, ongoing in all sorts of kind of strange, strange ways of that for, for those of us who lived through it the first time. Um, yeah, I mean, so this there are there are two chapters in the book where I focus particularly on the, the Satanic Verses, a novel from 1988 by Saman Rushdie. Um, and the, the first part is really trying to draw out the fact that, that Rushdie, this novel, um, this controversial novel, 
Uh, sure, it's about a, a retelling of, of the ancient origins of Islam, but actually a really significant chunk of the novel is dealing is giving voice really to to Rushdie's own beefs, his own kind of issues with the British state, particularly um, the kind of what he sees as the legalised racism of the British state in terms of how it treats um, immigrants and how it treats its black and brown citizens um, and how that works its way as material into the novel. Um, And to do that, I I try to give some attention to the fact that um, Rushdie himself was was volunteering, was was part of a grassroots organisation in North London called the Camden Committee for Community Relations. And this is a a kind of grassroots community organisation, really, that that worked with with people recently arrived into Britain or people who'd been in Britain for some time um, from, from former colonies. And uh, that tried to lobby on issues of immigration and nationality law and to promote um, various kinds of social access and social welfare in Camden. And as part of volunteering for that organisation, Rushdie encountered all sorts of stories, um, stories of people being subject to um, immigration raids, um, stories about the National Front targeting school children in Camden, um, all sorts of different things. And, and in a couple of cases, those stories make themselves um, kind of weave themselves into the satanic verses. And, and they also weave themselves into Rushdie's own essays, um, which are kind of published in, uh, in more generally in the 1980s. Um, and so that I think that really changes how we look at this novel. For one thing, going back to this idea about literary individualism, um, it means that we're, we're kind of challenged to see the novel more generally, not just as the voice of one man. Um, in many ways, it's the voices of all sorts of other people's experiences um, of, of kind of collective reports that get written by this community organisation about housing um, or about other issues. Um, and that works its way into the novel. So that's one kind of aspect to, to Rushdie's um, to the question of Rush- Rushdie, really, which is his kind of the anti-statist, anti-institutional energies of the satanic verses. And, and in a sense, that makes what happens next only more interesting or only more complex, um, which is, you know, shortly after the satanic verses is published, you get two things happen, one of which is that uh, the satanic verses is nominated for the book prize, although it doesn't win, um again, although it doesn't win, the the awarding speech that gets made at the Booker Prize ceremony is all about um, supporting Rushdie because the other thing that has happened is that um, the Ayatollah Khomeini had, had issued a fatwa calling for um, Rush, Rushdie's death effectively. And in those circumstances, all of a sudden, the British state, which is actually not very keen on Rushdie for all sorts of obvious reasons, if you know what he said about um, he calls Maggie Thatcher Mrs. Torture at one point. He makes all sorts of comments in the Stanley verses about the Falkland Islands. So he's a real critic of the state. But because of, of the fatwa, the British state is kind of compelled to protect its own citizen who's under the threat of another, well, under a threat beyond the kind of legal sovereignty of, of another nation. Um, and for that kind of strange reason, the, the Tory government at the time ends up being one of 
the key forces, which is really protecting not only uh, Rushdie's personal safety, which it is, um, you know, as many people know, he was he had his own kind of security detail for a long time. Um, but also the British state, even though it's not keen on the book, is protecting the book's right to exist. And to understand that, we need to go into some of the background around um, blasphemy laws, freedom of expression, um, and all sorts of things like that, which themselves, as I argue in the book, have a kind of more colonial history rooted in the Indian Penal Code in of the 1860s. Um, so it's really, it is very tangled, but... Rushdie is both critical of the state and ultimately protected by it uh, in ways that are quite unusual and surprising, really. The book closes with, I I guess, a kind of a return to um, a cross or international perspective. Um, Actually, you know, the the Rushdie affair you've just been, been talking about is grounded in very much, you know, 1980s Britain, but it's also a clearly international um, story and, you know, in- includes various things about, as you've mentioned, international diplomatic incidents and, and this kind of thing. But the book sort of comes to um, to its final chapter by thinking about UNESCO, which is basically the kind of cultural bit um, of the United uh, Nations and, and Britain's, I guess, kind of ambivalent relationships with it and and one of the things I, I was keen to to kind of tease out was this idea about cultural diversity um partially because it's distinctively different from multiculturalism partially because it's in, literally in, in the subtitle of the book but also um i think it shows um in, in some ways an extension actually of what you've just been saying about the kind of ambivalence of the british state towards um, not just literature, but also culture itself. Mm. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, the the story of the UK's relationship to UNESCO and particularly its relationship to the idea of cultural diversity, which needs a bit of unpacking, is a, is a kind of bookend to what I was describing with the British Council. So with the British Council, you get this this attempt to kind of first foray uh, of of the British state into um, forms of of literary support and for for quite um, poorly disguised foreign policy reasons. Um, And as you go towards the end of the 20th century or the beginning of the 21st century, you get a kind of bookend of of some of these wrangles about the relationship of British state cultural institutions to what's happening internationally. and the ambivalence that you you mentioned there, Dave, a minute ago, I think is really runs through the the historic relationship between the United Kingdom and UNESCO, and before that, the relationship between um, the British state and uh, the League of Nations. And and at the beginning of the book, I mentioned the the difficult relationship with um, an organisation called the International Institute for Intellectual Culture, um, and the way really that funding is is directed towards the British Council, which is seemingly much more kind of national, um, rather than the cause of intellectual cooperation between nations, which the League of Nations is trying to, to promote. Um, and yeah, by the end of the 20th century, beginning of the 21st century, uh, that some of that crops up again. So for the British state, I think there is an ambivalence about UNESCO over the issue of really of, of who gets to who gets to tell the state what to do um, and the, the kind of sovereignty of, 
of member states of UNESCO and, and that being a kind of difficult issue. Some of this is also about who is directing UNESCO at the time and the ascendancy of a kind of Franco-Canadian lobby, which has a particular view on um, on cultural policy. Um, and, and on the issue of cultural diversity, really, you know, the, the term cultural diversity needs a little bit of attention by the end of the book because it seems to mean so many different things. So for some people, cultural diversity is about um, is a social fact, you know, to do with the multicultural nature of society. For some people, it's something that's kind of much more um, almost transcendental to do with the nature of being human and dialogue between different types of humans. Um, but for other people, um, cultural diversity is really to do with the status of commodities. And, and this is what unfolds in UNESCO um, as uh, as I said, the a kind of Franco-Canadian lobby really try to use, appropriate the language of cultural diversity to make a particular move at the level of an organisation like UNESCO uh, to secure their own national cultural markets. And, and this is all about anxiety to do with the kind of hegemony of, of um, US audiovisual products. Um, and so suddenly you're in a very different set of circumstances. So you have this domestic the domestic facts or the domestic realities of cultural diversity in the UK and by this point the UK has almost got a reputation in Europe for seemingly having done well on issues of its own interior diversity Um, but then you've got the international stage of of the relationship between nations the relationship between different kinds of um, uh, groups trying to protect or promote different kinds of cultural products and in the midst of that, the language of cultural diversity acquires a whole new set of kind of valences, really. Um, and the UK trying to decide its own, its kind of own sovereignty within an organisation like UNESCO. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty complex situation, but one that seems to typify the different things that are coming together um, by the end of the century. The, the other thing from the book's title um and and actually you know you've you've alluded it to there uh, to to it there in terms of what's happening at the end of the century is this idea of after 1945 which um is, is kind of usefully vague enough um for you to go right up to um the moment where where you were kind of wrapping up the book and, and sending it off to the publishers and both in in the conclusion but but also i'm i'm, I'm interested more generally in where you think the book's analysis kind of fits in or, or contributes to the contemporary debates that when you were writing, you know, were kind of writ large in, in the publishing industry and, and have not gone away, particularly in terms of things like racial inequality uh, in publishing, um, publishing houses, you know, we, we can see are, are trying to kind of respond to calls for more diversity, in some cases for decolonization of both uh, their lists and, and, and to an extent um, developing their audiences as well. But, but where does the kind of, I guess, um, story of um, the different relationship between uh, state and literature fit into what's going on in publishing now? Mm. I mean, one of the, the things I was trying to do with the book was to give a bit of prehistory. So to what we're, what we're experiencing now in terms of some of the, the public debates that are happening about the diversity of publishing um, uh, and the literary industries or creative industries more generally. And to say, actually, this is um, not only has the state at key times played a really important role in 
in supporting a category of, of literary production, one that's deeply conflicted and partial and has all kinds of issues, but nonetheless, one that is has been materially significant. Um, you know, if you think about, you know, some of the names of key names of post-colonial writing in Britain, Salman Rushdie, uh, Sam Selvon, Jean Rees, these are all individuals who received Arts Council grants, for instance, um, to show some of that prehistory and, and to show that we... We have we are where we are, but also there there's stuff that we can learn from from the past, and not least because we often make the same mistakes again and again. Um, but really, by the end, I think where we end up is thinking about well, what happens? What happens, for instance, if we don't know this prehistory? When if we don't um, if we write the state out of um, these debates about literatures? Um, right to exist on its own terms, literature's claim to represent a diverse range of voices. Um, well, I think we miss something if we miss this kind of historic role of the state, um, particularly because diversity then becomes about um, about capturing markets. And so it acquires a, a really commercialised and problematic kind of valence to it as well. Um, and so... I think I mean I mean I think uh, the literary field itself expresses the unevenness of um, of social access in all sorts of ways, and the state is both um, the state I think has has been subject to all sorts of important forms of pressure from outsides that are re- that are really kind of uh, illustrative now. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's, it's part of kind of showing us how we've got to where we are today, really. And and really, we need to know this so we can make stronger claims for forms of economic support, for forms of public support um, today, and not just rely on the kind of going to the lowest common den- denominator about what makes the most money. And, and there's a very thin version of diversity out there that, that we could end up at if we're not careful. I mean, the book um, has got so much in it. It's, it's so kind of incredibly rich and, and it's it's a huge achievement to have ranged um, over the historical period, over the particular detailed case studies um, and, and indeed actually to you know make that argument as, as you've just articulated so brilliantly of, of a sense of the importance um, of this history. So it's probably a bit mean to kind of say, so what are you working on next? <laughs> but yeah, what, where do you kind of go with a text like this? Is there a sense of, um, I really don't want to write about this ever again because I've done so much on it? Or um, are there sort of new research possibilities that have come from the book? Uh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I'm going. I'm actually going even back, even further back into the deep past. So at the moment, I'm, I'm working on the question of the state as a, as a, um, the kind of primary agent of linguistic imperialism, and picking up on some of the things I've said about the British Council, but really going into um, colonial education policy and thinking about the way that, kind of unexpectedly, uh, colonial states sought to prevent people from accessing the the English language and uh, sought to protect the vernacular languages, um, but again, for, for fairly dubious reasons. Um, so that question of language and the state's relationship to protecting and promoting it uh, is something that I'm working on now. And I think one of the lessons that has really 
come out of this book is really the value of what can be gained from a kind of institutional approach. Um, and, and for a literary studies person, that always presents a kind of uh, a, a kind of a generative counter argument in my own head about how literature comes back to be relevant. You know, what does reading literature actually uh, do? Could you just rely on a purely historical account? Or are there unexpected links between, you know, the work that is out there that creative people have produced that, that puts pressure on some of these institutional attitudes to to what organisations think they're doing and, and for whom and for what reasons. So uh, a kind of dialogue between the different parts of my head continues to be uh, really productive, I would say. Mm-hmm.